Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, my name is Sue from the Salveson Mindrum Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm recording a psychological with uh, Professor Emily Farron um, from the University of Surrey. And um, she's going to be talking to me about some uh, work that she's done, a kind of group of papers looking at spatial ability in relation to STEM success. So science, technology, engineering and maths. Is that right, Emily? Have I got yep, that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Great. And um, so, hello, Emily. How are you doing today? Hi, Sue. Yep, I'm fine. Thank you. Fantastic. So tell me, what did you discover when you were looking at this um, relationship between spatial ability and, and STEM success? Well, we're, I've been interested in spatial thinking and spatial ability for a long while. And when I started looking at it um, with my lab group um, in relation to STEM subjects, so specifically we're thinking about science and mathematics, we were looking at it in primary school children. And we found that spatial thinking is a, a really sort of integral contributor to success in science and math. So spatial thinking is very, very important um, for children to be able to succeed in, in science and math. And what's also quite important is that we found that spatial thinking is something that can be trained. So you can train spatial ability and this will have a downstream sort of positive impact um, on math ability. And we haven't looked at it in science yet, but that will be coming at some point. Gosh, that is really the holy grail, actually, isn't it, as a psychologist, <laughs> to find a, a psychological phenomenon that you can train that makes a difference on a real-world skill. So I'm quite yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, there's quite a lot of research coming through now. It's been a, a real kind of tsunami in the last <clears throat> that's sort of built up over the last ten years of a lot more research um, into spatial thinking and, and what its kind of downstream impacts are on sort of academic achievement. So, so before we go any further, then, could you just define what you mean by spatial thinking in, in sort of um, slightly more um, yeah, you know, real-world terms? I, yeah. I was thinking about anything spatial that I might have done this morning, and I, I could come up with quite a lot of things, particularly because I was trying to get all my three children dressed this morning, and mm -hmm. I had to tell them, I had to use words like back and in front, which are spatial words. I had to get them to rotate their T-shirts so that the label was at the back. I had to um, make sure they got into the right car door so they could understand the relationship between their seat in the car and which side of the car they needed to get into. So you use it all the time. You need it when you use it when you're packing bags to make sure that everything fits in. You use it when you're stacking a dishwasher, getting dressed, um, even just sort of navigating. This is called large scale spatial ability. So when you need to get yourself from A to B, so children in a school, you know, if they need to go to the toilet from their classroom, they need to know the series of turns needed to get them there and to get them back again. Um, so it's all about locations and dimensions of objects and the relationships between different objects and also between yourself and different objects. Mm. And so in terms of sort of investigating how that relates to STEM subjects, is that is the kind of theory that that same thinking process is used when you're exploring things that are more abstract right like number relationships or, or yeah like that. is that the idea yeah absolutely so you use a lot of visualization which is, is a spatial skill so 
um, being able to kind of mentally think about things in your head and to visualize things moving in your head. So, for example, in physics, you might be able to think about a ball moving and the different speeds and where it will land. Um, just in front of me now, if I want to think about, oh, I need to pick up my coffee cup, where does the handle need to be? I can think about visualizing it, um, sort of rotating it around. Um, in maths, um, there's a lot of relationship in math between spatial scaling. So understanding things um, at different scales and how they relate to one another. So um, thinking about um, a map, for example, is, is a small scale version um, of, of it's a small scale representation of the real world. And, and in, um, in math, it seems to be related to proportional reasoning. Um, so understanding ratios and fractions and things like that. Um, mm. So, so there's, there's lots of different links of the sort of shared processes between particular spatial skills and particular maths or, or science skills. Right. And so how, so thinking more about the kind of methods of the work you've been doing in this area, how do you go about measuring spatial ability in a kind of experimental context? You know, do you, do you have kind of clever tasks or are you asking about kind of real world behaviors what sort of things do you use yeah i mean what we're doing at the moment is trying to kind of isolate particularly pure spatial abilities so that we can think mm -hmm. about these pure spatial abilities and how they individually contribute to um different aspects of math or different aspects of science so for the papers that I talked about in the article that um, I put forward to you, um, we were using a model put forward by David Utall and Nora Newcomb and their colleagues, where they think about spatial ability as being divided into four different categories. Um, and these are based on two um, distinctions, one between extrinsic and intrinsic skills, which I can talk about what that means, and the other between um, sorry, not spatial, static and dynamic skills. Um, so extrinsic skills are about the relationship, the location of objects and the relationship between them. So these are things kind of like the navigation tasks that I was talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, intrinsic skills um, relate to the spatial properties of a particular object and the part and parts of an object. Um, right. And dynamic and spatial, uh, dynamic and static skills are a bit more space. Um, self-explanatory so dynamic involves movement and static is, is something that's still so like a map um, mm. so we were able to kind of in experimental tasks isolate um, the different four types of spatial skills um, using kind of computer-based tasks or um, pen and pencil tasks and, and then look at the sort of variance in children's ability to do those tasks and how that related to their variance in math ability or space or um, science ability. And so, um, oh, this is so, uh, as, as is so often the case, I'm torn between multiple questions that I want to ask. <laughs> so maybe, I wonder quickly if you could just pick one of those tasks and just describe it in a bit more detail. I'm just really curious to get a sense of it because these aren't tasks I'm familiar with and maybe some of Yeah, okay. So, to understand something like an intrinsic dynamic spatial skill, we might have had a mental folding task or a mental rotation task. So to explain a mental rotation task, then you're asked to imagine an animal um, rotating in your head. Um, and so you're presented with um, a rotated animal and two mirror image animals, and you need to rotate the one at the top to see which one of the ones at the bottom that match matches. So that would be an intrinsic dynamic skill 
mental folding is similar. You have a, a kind of um, layout um, where you have to mentally fold. Um, oh, I can't really explain this one very well. You have to mentally um, fold the image so that you can say whether different parts of the image would touch each other when you were folding them. Right, um, so it's kind of an un a 2D unfolded shape that you need to mentally fold into a 3D shape and say whether it would, would make sense or not. Um, so that would be an intrinsic dynamics task. Spatial scaling is, is where you have two different representations of um, the same environment, um, but at different scales. Um, so, for example, if you've got two different maps and on that map, on one of the maps, you would have um, an egg, for example, if it's, we had one where it was a farmer's field and there was an egg, and then you have to say on the on the smaller representation where that mm -hmm. egg would be. Um, so you're trying to understand the relationship in spatial scale between those two different things. Um, this, is, this is one of the things I love so much about developmental psychology, is the kind <laughs> of creativity that people put into coming up with these tasks that, that as you say, try and extract a, a kind of pure... Um, psychological skill, or you know, kind of cognitive skill, right? Uh, from from all the complexity of how it might be applied in real world, in a way that's engaging for children and understandable. And so, oh no, absolutely, and and yeah. also with children, getting that balance between getting enough trials through without them getting bored, um, yeah. and certainly the spatial scaling task. Katie Gilligan must have done this task over 150 times with children, and. She used to come back with a really bad army because she had this massive map that she had to sort of turn the pages of um, multiple times for each child. Um, and then they were looking at the computer screen to see if it related to the smaller version. Um, so yeah. there's, there's lots of kind of factors in there that, that yeah, don't come out in the paper. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've had similar things, definitely. Um, so... So, so thinking then about the analysis, so you've, you've talked about how spatial ability can be broken down into these, mm -hmm. you know, two different kind of dichotomies, right? So you've got mm -hmm. four different categories then. So yeah. do you find, um, you know, when you're looking at the relationship between those and kind of STEM skills, do you, do you find consistent, is, you know, is it all four that make a difference or are there kind of variabilities in... in yeah, the, there's, there's some things that come out quite strongly and other things that come out on particular topics um, and not on others. So, for example, um, intrinsic dynamic skills for the mental folding or the mental rotation skills um, seem to come out quite a lot in both science um, and maths. And I think this is related to these visualisation skills. So there's so many mm -hmm. times in both maths and science that... You need to be able to visualize something in your head. So in maths, when you get kind of maths word problems, then you need to kind of translate that somehow into numbers and try and work it out um, by visualizing it. Um, and, and the other things that come out quite strongly for maths are spatial scaling. Um, and then some things are a bit more specific. So disembedding, which is um, with our intrinsic static task where people had to process the parts um, of, a, of a whole object. And sort of and disembed those parts from the whole. We found this was quite important for chemistry, but it wasn't necessarily important for biology and physics. Mm. Um, and I think this is related to the kinds of diagrams that you get in chemistry, and that you might need to compare diagrams across each other and the component parts. You know, if you've got different kinds of different numbers of beakers and different numbers of ice cubes and things like that, then you're having to disembed the parts a bit more than you might be um, in other types of science. Um, so yeah, mm. so some things are quite 
quite consistent and other things are more specific to, dif- to different types of maths or different types of science. Mm, that's so interesting. And, and, and it occurs to me that it, it's not just, um, so these relationships are not just relationships with, you know, the sort of conceptual knowledge that you need to accumulate in order to be good at maths or good at physics or whatever. It's also relationships with the kind of specific ways that we teach those subjects, you know? Um, when you're talking about that, the kind of chemistry diagrams and so on, like that's, mm. that's very much a kind of property of how chemistry is taught in our school system and rather than necessarily about the fundamental understandings that, that someone needs to have to be able to be good at chemistry. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess for, for all these sort of taught academic subjects there are particular tools that are being used and being used in different ways um, for different subjects Um, and diagrams and graphs sketches and maps they're all kind of spatial tools and I I guess you're right in order to get concepts across it might be different um, how you do it in biology compared to chemistry. Mm, mm, It's really interesting Um, and I suppose so one more question I should ask before we sort of think about maybe some of the consequences of the work you've been doing. Um, I haven't really asked you how you how you measured STEM success, right? So I'm getting the impression that it was based on kind of real world school attainment or did you do some kind of special? Yeah, it, um, it kind of, it varied. Um, so the, the maths um, portion of this was led by Katie Gilligan-Lee and the science portion was led by Alex Hodgkiss and, and it, it varied in how it was done. Um, so... Alex's background was that he was a primary school teacher and so he he used very curriculum-based science Mm. um, tasks. Um, So he put together some some sort of science tests based on the curriculum for the age groups that he was using Mm. um, um, for chemistry, biology and physics. Um, And he could divide those up into sort of experimental categories in terms of the types of questions he was asking. Um, For Mm. Katie, um, maths, there's a bit more knowledge as to how... um, it can be categorized as different sort of subdomains of math. And so she was able to, um, so we had one sort of standardized math task, which we, you could say is a kind of a measure of classroom-based maths. Um, but then across different types of studies, she used, uh, I think, sort of as our understand was, understanding was evolving, we used, she used sort of different subdomains mm. of maths. So um, she, she used sort of arithmetic and geometry um, and at different points, you use sort of number line tasks or, or more sort of traditional kind of psychology um, driven tasks. Um, so thinking about approximate number skills and things like that. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, so, so I want to get on to, to thinking about what we can learn from this, because you said right at the beginning that there was some evidence that we could train these spatial abilities and mm-hmm. have downstream effects on on things like math skills. So I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how that training might work and the, and the kinds of findings that you've, that you've been getting. Yeah, so uh, the majority of studies have, have looked at associations, but I'd say in the last sort of five years, there's been a lot more coming through um, related to training. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the paper that I mentioned before by David Utel, it, that was a meta-analysis where he did look at training and, and he was able to show with, with fairly large effect sizes that that training of spatial ability um, did work um, 
on that it was mainly on the research there was a research at that time it was mainly on kind of older children and university students so there isn't or there wasn't a huge amount on primary school children and actually Katie Gilligan Lee um, I'm kind of waiting excitedly for the results of a meta-analysis that she's running at the moment to look at the the more recent studies where they've looked at spatial training um, in primary school age children but but, you know, she said it's looking promising and it seems that spatial training um, is something that works. Um, she's been looking at it in relation to maths. Um, mm. so, so, yeah, I mean, this, this has a real key message for teachers, because if we know that um, integrating spatial thinking abilities into the curriculum is, is, is likely to have a strong effect on, on the children's understanding of maths and of science, um, then why wouldn't you do it? Um, so, it, you know, this is something that I think... Um, we're trying to um, kind of get the message through to teachers and, and certainly there are lots of teachers that do read the research and so you know people are um, really trying to think about what spatial reasoning and what spatial thinking can be integrated um, into the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And do you think so so there's you know that would obviously then um, benefit everyone in the class so making perhaps you know Spatial skills are more explicit sort of conscious thing that is taught within the curriculum, right? But do you also think that this kind of training could have some benefit for kids who are particularly struggling with their STEM subjects? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways it's just about enlightening children to the to the idea that, oh, you could actually think about this in your head. You could actually try and... and have a sort of image of this in your head and and be able to manipulate things in your head and and certainly Katie ran one training study and, and she said to some of the children just that kind of saying to them did you know you could do this in your head was like some kind of eureka moment so sometimes it is as, as straightforward as you know if children are struggling it might just be that they don't they haven't really been armed with the tools to understand um, that that they can they can kind of use visualization they can use sketching um, to sort of draw on their spatial abilities um, and this mm -hmm. kind of helps them with their their problem solving skills um, as well um, so there's kind of a lot of downstream impacts then in, ter in terms of well particularly kind of the problem solving skills we need in everyday life and these kind of work ready skills that the employers mm -hmm. talk about mm. I think that's so great I think you're right because often particularly perhaps STEM subjects can feel like a bit of a black box, you know, like you either get mm -hmm. it or you don't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's some, there's a sort of sense of mystery about what's going on. So mm -hmm. um, I just think that sounds like a very, um, a really nice way to think about it is just to draw, draw it out more explicitly. Mm -hmm. So um, we should probably draw to a close in order to maintain our attempt to be so-called bite-sized podcast. <laughs> but I did want to ask before we finish, um, for any kind of early career researchers or students who are listening, is there any um, words of wisdom that you would like to impart to them uh, based on your kind of academic career? Yeah, I mean, I, I was thinking about this and I think the main thing is to, pick your collaborators well <laughs> make sure that you you know when you go for a PhD you know don't just be wowed by you know the fact that there's a PhD on offer think about whether you're going to get a supportive supervisor think about whether you're going to have a good relationship with that supervisor um, 
and 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 beyond that when you get into you know your first postdoc or your lecturing position you need to make sure that your collaborators are going to sort of help you they're going to pull their weight um because it's just worth so much to have really good collaborators that you get on well with and that it's that you kind of have a a collaborative and and sort of collegiate way of going on um and and it, it just yeah it it makes a big difference and and I guess as well use your network so that you can you can find these people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Sometimes I feel like my whole career so far has just been a process of of re- refining my mental list of people I want to work with. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And and uh, you know things things change and people dip in and out of how busy they are and things like that. But I think the essence of having people that you can kind of work through problems with um, and you're not feeling that you're kind of, you know, doing stuff alone um, in your own silo. I mean, I, I think it's, it's worth so much. Mm, mm, completely agree. Um, well, thank you so much for your time, Emily. And for anyone listening, you will be able to find out more about Emily's work by following the links in the podcast description. So thanks so much. Um, Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly. <laughs>